0: bibles to psalm 16 psalm 16 for today's resurrection sermon and praise the lord he is risen man he is risen indeed i told someone today i'm preparing my resurrection sermon out of the old testament they said huh thought the resurrection was in the new testament so i'm here to clarify some things Psalm 16. We're going to read the entire psalm together. Let's read. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood. Nor will I take their lips upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me. In the night, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray one more time together. Heavenly Father, again, we thank You for this glorious day. I pray that You would remind us of the Apostles' words there in 1 Corinthians 15 as Paul says that without the resurrection, we are most of all people to be pitied and we are still in our sin, which is the most dreadful reality that could ever be. For a human being to be left in their sin. And so, Lord, we are reminded of the all-important role of the resurrection for our faith. We thank You for our risen Savior, for His glorious cross work. We thank You, Lord, not only for His resurrection, we thank You for His perfect life. We thank You for His atoning death. And we thank You for His glorious exaltation in resurrection life as He has now ascended to the right hand of the Father where He rules and reigns triumphantly over all of the universe, over all the peoples of the earth, a rule and a reign that has already begun to reside in our hearts. We thank You for the principles that the resurrection gives us, the hope that it instills, the life that it produces in our hearts even now and ultimately the hope of future life with Him. And so, Father, we ask that You would, in the words of the psalmist here, that You would set these realities ever before us. That they would be the means to overcome the darkness of depression in our life. That it would be the means to overcome the despair of discouragement, that it would be the means in our lives to help us to walk in the purity of a resurrected life. Give us your grace today. Strengthen your people, I pray, to receive your word with gladness and fear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today's sermon is entitled, A Song of Steadfast Hope, A Song of Steadfast Hope, understanding that the Psalms are really songs. These are portions of Scripture that were sung in ancient, ancient Israel. And these songs are different songs. Some of the psalms are psalms of of lament, and they would sing lamentations. They would sing dirges unto their God. Some psalms are psalms of of, uh, exaltation, uh, psalms of enthronement, where they would sing about the enthronement of the King, of the Holy One of Israel. And there are various psalms for different reasons, but this psalm here is one of those psalms that speaks of the... The agony of the king, the trial of the king, the perseverance of the king. It's, it's a psalm that really deals with the enemy, uh, the, the, the king, as he combats different enemies. Uh, in, the brighter, in the broader context of the psalm, you find that this psalm is situated in a collection of the first book of the psalms because you realize that the book of psalms that you're holding in your hands is really a collection of five books. Right, The Psalter is a composition of five books, and you'll see that there in your English Bible. These books were organized and they were um, structured in a very important way. Different books pertain to different issues, all surrounding the, the king and the kingdom and the people of the kingdom. And this one is actually situated in a place where in Psalm 15 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 20. The psalmist is grappling with his enemies. And specifically, Psalm 16 belongs to one of those psalms, like Psalm 23, Psalm 30, Psalm 33, Psalm 39, where the psalmist is grappling with the threat of death. The threat of death. Because David, among all of his human adversaries, had an adversary that was greater than any human or any temporal adversary that he would ever face. Namely, the grave. And certainly you can begin to see why uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians addresses this enemy as the last enemy that will be destroyed. It is an enemy. Death is not a part of life. How many sitcoms or people on television or through the years have you heard people say well death is just a natural part of life that is heresy death is a curse death is the enemy perhaps I'm sensitive to this as a pastor having presided over numerous funerals having looked down into the grave and having stood over the lifeless bodies of people who have gone down into their Resting place here on earth, I'm sensitive to this because it's a reminder to us that we all are drawn into the experience of the psalmist. We are meant to be participants in this psalm in a very unique way. I want to show you quickly a few things. Number one, we get at the outset of this psalm what we could call the cry of the Holy One. Using the Holy One as our sort of structure, our outline In verses 1 and 2, we have the initial cry of the Holy One. You kind of see the desperation. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, preserve me, O God. That cry of preservation is really a cry of despair. It's a cry of crisis. It's a cry of overwhelming circumstances, whatever they may be. And scholars are sort of Uh, torn as to exactly where to place this psalm in the life of David. But at any rate, David was a man accompanied with trial. He was a man accompanied with crisis. If it wasn't his, uh, you know, if it wasn't somebody in his own family trying to kill him like Absalom, if it wasn't a whole nation out to kill him like the Philistines, it seems like David was always on the run either from Saul or someone. And so David was often in despair, often hiding out in the caves, in the mountains crying out to his God to save him. But here he is aware of the fact that death is a real enemy from which he needs preservation. And look at what he says. I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good beside you. In other words, verses 1 and 2, just for our interpretation. Remember, maybe later on as we're fellowshipping over some food. And later you go home uh, tonight, hopefully with your stomach fully intact still, uh, we will reflect on the sermon today and we will ask, what was the sermon about today? Oh yes, the resurrection. But what was it about? And if you want the cliff notes, read verse 1 and 2. Because verse 1 and 2 is in a sense, it's sort of a summation of the entire psalm. Here we have the entirety of the psalm in summary form. This is what it is. This is the Author giving us sort of the clue, the key to this entire Psalm that this is a Psalm in which the Holy One is in crisis. He is in desperation. He is crying out to his God to preserve him and, and what, and the steps that he takes. These are faithful steps on the, on the part of the Holy One to take refuge in the Lord and to be satisfied in him so that he says, I have no good beside you. You know, when you're confronted with death, you will, I think all of us, if we're given the luxury of time to contemplate this, maybe on a deathbed, I think we will come really quick to the conclusion of what is really good in this world. I think we will very quickly come to the conclusion that we have no good aside from Him. Doctors are not good. Medicine is not good. This hospital that I'm laying in is not good. Friends' earthly comforts are no good. They run out. They run their, their course. They have their limitations. But the Lord, He is my good. And that is what it's meant to produce in us. And we see the content of David's Cry David's hope. The context of that hope is his crisis that he's in. The content of that hope is that he takes refuge in the Lord. In a sense, brothers and sisters, here the psalmist is telling us the secret to immortality. Total dependence. Total reliance. Total satisfaction in the goodness and the benevolence and in the power of God. That's where life is truly found. And that is the cry of the Holy One. Now, before we proceed much further, let me bring in a point of hermeneutics. Because I am going to suggest to us that what we have in Psalm 16 is the cry of Jesus Christ. Now, you look over your psalm again, would you? Do you see the word Jesus Christ anywhere there? Why, no. But you do see a reference to the Holy One. Verse 10. The Holy One will not undergo decay. Now, you understand because of simple cross-references in your Bible, and as Scripture interprets Scripture, the apostles were keen to know by the Spirit that David spoke of Him. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But this is a psalm that is picked up in Acts chapter 2 and in other places, unapologetically referring to Jesus Christ. Therefore, I will not apologize by referring directly to the experience of the true penultimate Holy One, Christ. It is His experience. When the Holy One, the true Holy One, comes into the world, He Himself will come into the very conflict that we are presented with here. The conflict is simple. The grave is eminent. The grave is real. The grave is powerful who will give me the the refuge and who will rescue me from the clutches of the grave where can i find victory over the grave i often say that a simple hermeneutical exercise to ask yourself in so you go from Old Testament to New Testament, is that sometimes the Old Testament raises a question that the New Testament answers. Who can give me victory over the grave? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, we are told in verses 51 to 55 that that victory comes through Christ who gives us the victory so that we can say, O oh, death, where is your sting? Now, Christ is the ultimate Holy One and really... The reason why this psalm is so crucial for us is that all of humanity is bound up to this Holy One of Israel. All of humanity is found here. Our lives, all of our lives, all of our fate is here. We are bound to Him, whether David or the Old Testament saints or the disciples or the early church. Everyone is joined to the experience of this Holy One. This king, both in life and in death, even his enemies. Their end is predicated on his end. What will become of them is predicated upon what will become of him. And therefore, this text is so amazing because we are all implicated here. We are all implicated here. Not just in his... Resurrection, but again, in his life, his death, his resurrection, that's why Jesus is the most significant, important person in the history of the world, because all of our lives are contingent upon his one singular life. Let's move through the text, though, and look next, not just at the cry of the Holy One, but next, the heritage of the Holy One there in verse 3 says, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. He's And, and, and therefore, you, you see that as he's moving through here, he has his people in mind as well. But look at verse 4. It says, But the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names on my lips. He says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in a pleasant place. Indeed, my heritage is is beautiful to me. So, several things going on here. First, notice that the heritage of Jesus includes his people, includes his people because he says, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight for the As far as the king is concerned, it is those who love the Lord, who know the Lord, and who are known by the Lord, who are the truly majestic ones of the earth. It is not the powerful kings. It is not the powerful politicians. It is not the famous celebrities. It is not the rich and wealthy and powerful and influential and, and famous in our, in our, in our world, in our society. It is the humble, lowly servant of God who is truly exalted in the Lord. They are the truly majestic ones. And watch what it says here. In whom is all my delight. Jesus loves His people. And his heritage includes not just the inheritance of resurrection life, but an inheritance of a resurrected people. That's his inheritance. It is, in other words, the covenant dictum. I will be their God. They will be my people. That's what's going on here. It is Jesus who was promised a people. And this people is a people that He redeems and He loves and He delights in. And He delights in them. He delights in us of no doing of our own. Shall I remind you? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, it says, The Lord did not set His love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest. But because the Lord loved you. In other words, Israel did not do anything special to become the chosen people of God. It's a perfect picture of election. You and I do not do anything special that triggers God to say... Okay, now I will choose you for my people. No, no, no. He sets his love upon us because he loves us, meaning because of his own sovereign initiative and that which is in keeping with his own sovereign purpose towards the end of his own sovereign glory. That's the motive. But you know that, of course, coming to a Calvinist church. God does everything for his glory. I remember, I'll remember. i never forget, I can almost remember the exact place where I was when I made that life-altering shift in my theology that God does not exist for me, I exist for God. In other words, that God does not uphold all things for the purpose of my good and my glory, but that God upholds all things for the purpose of His good and His glory. It is the It is a universe of difference between someone that has a man-centered worldview and someone that has a God-centered worldview. And people that have a man-centered worldview are very difficult to work with (laughs) because you constantly have to try to make them feel special. And you have to constantly try to make them feel as if everything is for them, that everything is to cater to them, that everything's to fulfill their needs, their wants, their desires, their dreams, their aspirations. In other words, every, the gospel of the world, meaning the gospel the world tells you. But the true gospel is not thus. The true gospel is that everything is for the glory of God and in that we end up finding our everlasting good. The soul of man was not created to be satisfied with his or her own glory. That's too shallow. That's too shallow. The flower will fade. The flesh will perish. But the Word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, The psalmist says, I have seen the limit of all perfection, but Your commandment is exceedingly broad. It's only in God that we find the infinite reason why we exist. It's only in the glory of God that we find reason enough to go on. Reason enough to cope with our trials, to deal with our sin, to work with our children, to stay in the family. It is only that It changes everything. One of the reasons why I'm making much of this is because, as we'll see, It's not just about Jesus being in the midst of his people, his holy one, his majestic ones, but also in his prominence among them. But first, notice also that the heritage of Jesus, while it includes his people, it also excludes the wicked. Did you notice verse 4? The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I... Take their lips on uh, their names upon my lips. Now, this is admittedly a very tricky uh, passage in the Hebrew. The reason why surrounds the term "there bartered," because that word is sort of, uh, you know, it's 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 sort of uh, um, debated as to precisely what is it saying there, because it could also mean to hurry. So it could in one sense refer and it actually means to hurry backwards. So it could actually be speaking primarily of apostasy. Of those who apostatize to another god. That would certainly make sense to us. We understand there that in that case, God is going to multiply the sorrows of the wicked. right? But it also has this idea of barter in the sense of there seems to be some sort of financial devotion to the gods. And that may be the more difficult and the more accurate reading, actually. So, in some sense, this may refer to the act of apostasy, yes, but even more precisely to the fact that people were devoting even their finances to God in the sense to try to bribe a false god to give them what they want. And certainly, the world of paganism is full of that. You have people giving devotions, bringing their wealth and their riches and, and, their, and, their, and their agricultural offerings to false deities in hope that by appeasing this false deity, He will then in turn bless them somehow. Whether it's with fertility, whether it's with material goods, whether it's with safety and security or prosperity of any kind, these people are those who put their hope and trust in someone other than the Holy One of Israel, and therefore God does not recognize them. He does not accept their offerings. I, I, you know, I'm thinking, how can I illustrate this in a way? I, I hate praying with unbelievers. Have you ever been in that situation where it's like, let's pray, and there's an unbeliever present? And I'm almost like, wow. <laughs> because the Bible says he doesn't even hear their prayer. And imagine, that's putting it nicely. It says his their prayers are an abomination to him. And so therefore, it's like, no, unless there's true fellowship among those who are redeemed, there's no access. And so therefore... I'd rather refrain from things like that. But, 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 but it's, it's more than that. It's any false religion that anyone is following anywhere where they are devoting themselves to some sort of false god. God will not recognize their worship. It's all vain. Uh, it's, all, it's all for nothing. I remember years ago, oh boy, years ago, Dr. John MacArthur was on Larry King Live. And Larry King says, Dr. MacArthur, there are millions or billions of Muslims in the world. They pray every day. What about them? And as you would expect, MacArthur answered with perfect theology because he said, sorry, they're praying to nobody. They're praying to nothing. Their prayers are, you know, they're empty. Imagine, no wonder he never came back to Larry King. (laughs) He gave the right answer. It's nothing different than what the psalmist has already said. Look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1, beginning in verse 4. It says, The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Which is to say something as if God... Takes their way, their path, their life into account. It matters to him in that sense. And they, they, are, they are, in a sense, precious to him. But it says, but the way of the wicked will perish. John the Revelator who understood all of this theology, says in Revelation chapter 21, just in terms of what we've said, in terms of the fact that Jesus' heritage excludes the wicked. In Revelation 21, 7, we actually get to see the precise outcome of what we're talking about. It says, He who overcomes will inherit all these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 8, Revelation 21, 8, But for the cowardly, notice that goes first. Notice that goes first. Cowardice. Not typically what you think would have been first, right? Maybe immorality would have been first. Interesting that John says, but for the cowardly. See, this is no different than what he learned from Jesus when Jesus says, If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and, walk, and follow me, or you are not worthy to be my disciple. There is a holy courage that it takes to follow Jesus. A willingness, as the author of Hebrews says, to bear his reproach. Whatever it may cost you, whoever may leave you, whoever may forsake you, whatever popularity, whatever friends, whatever family you may have to cut off or be cut off from, whatever persecution or insult or ridicule you may have to endure for the name of Christ to that degree of courage you are in but if you are ashamed of the son of god if you refuse to acknowledge him before man he will not acknowledge you coward before the father and the holy angels in heaven it's just a way of saying you chose wickedness instead of righteousness So that no coward, no unbelieving, no abominable, no murderers, no immoral persons and sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, will have their part in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Dreadful. Dreadful. And that's what I mean. That in this psalm, the whole world is implicated in what happens to the Holy One. It's not just the exclusion, the expulsion of the wicked. It is also the fact that he will, in his heritage, have a preeminent place. Look at the, look at the verse, the language here, verse five. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. And then he uses this language that was so familiar to the Israelites when he says in verse six, the lines have fallen to me in a pleasant place, in pleasant places indeed my heritage is beautiful to me so when he says these lines have fallen to me in other words it's saying these lines these borders and boundaries which the lord has marked out for me is a beautiful lot in other words the place that god has reserved for me is glorious it's beautiful my heritage is beautiful and really what is that what is that lot what are those lines where is that place of preeminence among his people. It is that Jesus becomes the focal point of eternity. He is at the center of his covenant community for all eternity. He will be among them. It says if Ezekiel or what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel thirty four twenty four, it says I the Lord God, he says, excuse me, I the Lord will be their God and my servant David hundreds of years after David is already dead. He says, my servant David will be prince among them. In other words, he will be exalted among them in their midst. Little did Ezekiel fully understand the resurrection implications of his words. Again, to see the fulfillment of this, How that Jesus, as the focal point of heaven, the focal point of eternity, He Himself will be the eternal, everlasting, all-satisfying epicenter of the glory of God as He shines forth with the glory of God in the midst of His people. Revelation chapter 7, look there, verse 15. For this reason they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. No, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. You know, climate change is over. <laughs> you know, I always kind of chuckle when they talk about climate change and Al Gore is going to you know, turn the temperature up on the universe. Not too hot, but just right just get it right where we all need it. Policy will do that, right? Anyway, let me get off of that subject. <laughs> Verse 17 says, The Lamb is the center of, in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is the place that Jesus will have in heaven among His people. He will be the preeminent one, as Colossians tells us. How? How? How will all of this happen? Now we move to what we can call the confidence of the Holy One, really found in verses 7 through 11 of this psalm. Verses 7 through 11, and there's four things I want to point out here quickly as we consider the confidence of Jesus Christ in the midst of this amazing psalm, the first thing to notice is that Jesus meditated on the wisdom of God. And here we are being given a glimpse into the earthly experience of Jesus as He traversed this world and the trial and passion that he went through, and the experience both mentally, emotionally, and psychologically that he must have gone through in his passion. I agree with those who have pointed out that if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, sometimes the Old Testament tells us uniquely things about Jesus that we cannot even find in the Gospels. Such as this. Look at verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me, Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, let's just stop there for a moment and think of verse 7. He says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. In other words, Jesus was in perfect communion with his Father and with the wisdom of his Father. How precious and how remarkable is this in light of his life when he got so much bad counsel. Peter, far be it from you, Lord. Right? You will not go to Jerusalem and die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because you are not mindful (laughs) of the will of my Father. So, of course, Jesus was constantly by, bombarded by the foolishness of not only his own people, but of the world. He was the ultimate embodiment of Job, who in the, at the heat and at the pinnacle of his suffering and his misery, what was the counsel that he received from the closest person to him? Curse God and die. In other words, Job, get it over with. Anything is worth getting beyond this trial. Just curse God and God will finish you. And it will be better than what you're going through now on the cross. Let Him come down from there. Satan, right? What would Satan counsel Christ? Throw yourself off of this, this cliff. God loves you. He'll rescue you. He'll deliver you. He'll send angels to deliver you if you just throw yourself off the cliff. Because you are Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. There's no way God is going to allow you to throw yourself off a cliff and go down and splat. No. So Satan, being the crafty, wicked, diabolical, genius, fallen angel demon that he is, knew exactly what Christ could be tempted with if He was not righteous. But of course, Christ overcame. And all along the path, Christ would receive bad counsel from His unbelieving family members to His own mother telling Him to do things out of step with the Father in the hour that He had ordained for Him, to His disciples his closest to Him, to the betrayer in His own midst, to even the mocker walking by and giving Him ways to relieve His agony. And in the midst of that, what does Jesus do? He meditates on the counsel of God. And notice what He says. He instructs me in the night. You ever have a hard night? You don't want to wake up in the morning. You ever have a hard night? You know what you got to do tomorrow? You ever have a hard night? You've had a really bad day. You're overwhelmed with anxiety. You can't sleep. Your mind's racing. You're overwhelmed. Maybe you're going through some physical thing. Maybe you're going through some some, you know, some some sort of illness or or some infirmity or something that's keeping you up at night wandering. Whatever it is, you've ever had a stressful night, I promise you, you've never had a night like Christ. You imagine the nights before His cross. How do you sleep? How do you sleep? Knowing the scourging is coming. The soldiers are coming. The cross is coming. The wrath of God is coming. And yet... He dwells securely. He meditates on the wisdom of His Father and He says, he, he, look, look at verse 7, part B. My mind instructs me in the night. Now, I was very keen on that phrase there. You know why? Because I just bought a book on theophanies. You know what a theophany is? It uh, comes from the Greek word theos, uh, phaino, which means God appears. So in other words, it's talking about all the appearances of God or maybe even appearances of Christ in the Old Testament where he appears through a pillar, or a cloud, the angel of the Lord, all of these things. Do you know how often those theophanies are accompanied by night visions? It was at night when the prophets would be in recluse in their own minds. When they would be sort of uh, recused away in their own privacy that God would come. And that He would manifest some vision, some dream, some theophany. But Jesus doesn't say, God gave me a theophany in my mind. He says, my mind instructs me in the night. Because Jesus is The Theophany. He is the ultimate appearing of Christ. He doesn't need for God to give him a vision. He is the one for whom all the visions were given. And now he directly communes with his Father... And His Father causes Him to dwell securely. But this is intentional. I want you to see this. That He didn't just meditate on the wisdom of God. He also rested in the faithfulness of God. Because look at what He says in verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I am not shaken. What a paradox. He is at my right hand. The very one who will inevitably pour out His awful wrath upon me is the very one, the only one, that will sustain me and keep me and be with me and fellowship with me in the night. When no no one's around, when no one sees in the secret place in the soliloquy of my mind, God is the one who is there with me. I tell you, this psalm goes deeper and deeper and deeper. More intense with every stanza as we progress down the song. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, for example, to see the fulfillment of some of this in the Psalters. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. What did the author of Hebrews say about Jesus in these exact moments? Verse 7, Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying, tears to the one. I love that. To the one able to save him from death. Even, we could add a commentary here, even through death. He was heard because of his piety. In other words, because Jesus remained faithful, resigned, humble, obedient. It merited communion with God. (laughs) Think about that. On the basis of His own obedience, He earned the right from God to be heard by God. you ever do that? No, you can't. No, you can't. You can never earn the right to be heard by God. There is only one who has ever earned the right to be heard from God because of His piety. Piety today, let's face it, is at an all-time low. Piety today is puritanical at best, passe. We don't write big books on piety anymore. We write books about how to be cool in the church. Jesus was not heard because he was cool. He was heard because he was pious. He was heard because he feared the wrath of God. He was heard because he obeyed the law of God. He was heard because in the very moment, in the very crucible, and the apex of his suffering and passion, Jesus did not apostatize, but Jesus instead leaned further and deeper into the faithfulness of his Father. Jesus also trusted in the power to save him. That's why he says there, if you look at verse 9, he says, Therefore my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell dwell securely. You see that? Because he knew that in the moment as death approached, the grave was drawing closer and closer and closer. Guess what's happening? He is becoming, in the eyes of his enemies and in the eyes of everybody around him, more and more powerless to the point that at the very moment of his suffering, he became so emptied of his power in a sense that he became powerless in front of people who were truly powerless. He became like a lamb quiet and silent before its shears, led to the slaughter, depending only and trusting solely in the power of God to sustain Him through His trial, through His tribulation. I want to quote Peter. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 captures all of this so perfectly. He says, For you have been called to this purpose. Talking to Christians about the fact that we are called to suffer for righteousness. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps, He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. That's incredible, right? He didn't mask what was going on. He never used His wisdom and knowledge in a way to deceive His disciples or even the world or anyone No, no, no. He dwelt with perfect, transparent suffering and embraced it. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats. And that should land on us with the weight of omnipotence. Because Christ, who had the power To unleash the legions of angelic hosts to come down and to incinerate his enemies uttered no threats. But he did what? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Because God is righteous. And then notice the reason why I say there's, there's, there's this sense in which there's an intensification in the communion that, that Jesus had with the Father as the hour of His passion draws near. Because if you notice in the text, if you go to verse 10, there's a switch. There's a grammatical turn of events. It says... He's at my right hand. My heart instructs me. My flesh will do- dwell securely. And then for the first time in the text. For you. Jesus turns. No longer just speaking of God as in the third person and what He was able to do for Him. Now Jesus uses the language of direct address to address His Father directly at the most point in His passion. Namely, rescue from the grave. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. It will probably be that for many of us here as we sit on our dying day, when all earthly comforts fail, that God would put us in a place of utter desperation where by faith And by the grace of God, if you are able, that you will be left to God alone. Will you address him? Will you know him in that moment? Or will he, at the moment of your greatest need, will he remain a stranger to you? Jesus could address his father directly because he had communion with the father. It was his father. And He was the Father's only begotten Son, crying out at that crucial moment, You, my Father, You can rescue me from all of this. And look at what He says. You will not abandon me. You will not leave me as an orphan, And because you don't leave me as an orphan, I will not leave my disciples as orphans either. He knew that his Father was there to be with him, to rescue him. Praise God, the Father would not leave his only begotten Son in the grave to rot. Perhaps we can take a lesson from the third world here in the Western world. In the Western world, there is a funeral... Hurry up, dress up the body, fix it up, pump it full of fluids, put on the best suit, tie, whatever, make him look real dignified, make her look as pretty as possible, do a little quick viewing and put it away, shut it down, put it away, bury it, get it out of the sight. In many cultures, they don't do that. They see the dead body of their loved ones and they are reminded of the, of the, the horror of death. The true curse That it is. But Jesus was not ever going to undergo decay. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Yes, I'm going to make you earn the potluck today. But it's worth it. By the way, hunger is the best sauce. You thank me for that later. Beginning in verse 25, look at this magnificent magnificent uh, detail that we're given in the text here, you guys. David says of him. See that? It it, it doesn't say that David, you know, uh, said of himself, but we just kind of reinterpret it so that somehow it says it of him. (laughs) No, the apostles are saying David himself said of him. He spoke of him, and we know that was by the Spirit. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. Here he's quoting out of this psalm. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. David, what is the proof of this messianic prophecy is that David is still in the tomb right there, rotting in his flesh, while the true Holy One of Israel has been resurrected in life. Jesus not only trusted in the power of God, He also lived, beloved, in the promises of God. He lived in these promises. Look with me again. Verse 11, you will make me to know the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. It is a happy ending to those that are happy in God. Remember I told you verses 1 and 2 is the cliff notes to the whole psalm? That's right. Preserve me. Great dilemma. The crisis is mounting, rising. The cry. Desperation. Preserve me, O God. That's our life right now, right? (laughs) Every week I hear, right? We hear ourselves groaning. Preserve me, O God. That's our life experience now. And then the happy ending. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord, I have no good beside you. That's so the key. Jesus understood that what was set in front of him was obtainable only by living by faith in the promises of God. The book of Hebrews gives us the perfect interpretation and captures the essence of exactly what Jesus was going through at this time. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. That's how He did it. For the joy. For the joy. Jesus had to look past the agony Past the pain. To the pleasure. To the joy. And in doing that, he was looking and he was gazing upon all of the promises of God for an eternal kingdom and an eternal dominion in which he would dwell and eternal glory. Daniel chapter 7. Because, you see, for those of you that are maybe unaware of the theology behind this. This all is owing to a covenant promise that God made to His Son before He sent Him to the earth on a life-saving mission to save His people from their sins. And in that eternal covenant, what was covenanted to the Son, what was promised to the Son, was an eternal kingdom of glory in the midst of a chosen, precious people for His own possession. And that eternal pact that covenant promise, that covenant commitment that was made to the Son, the prophets were given, oh, but the slightest glimpse into what that would look like. And so Daniel says, ah, proving my point earlier, it's very rare I kind of surprise myself up here. <laughs> Maybe that's not true, but <laughs> I guess anytime something goes right, it surprises me. <laughs> Verse 13 says, I kept looking in the night visions. You see, God spoke to His prophets often at night. He says behold with the clouds of heaven one like the son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days that is the father in all of his glory and he was presented before him and to him was given that is to the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed these are are the promises that were uppermost in the heart of Jesus as he approached his death, as he looked down into the grave, as he waited for God to extend his days and to grant him resurrection life. Brothers and sisters, this psalm reminds us that those who have this hope of future resurrection Give expression to that hope here and now by the way that we delight ourselves in the Lord, by the way that we are satisfied in Him, by the way that we can say with Christ, I have no good besides you. This psalm also reminds us of the need we need to press into communion with God with greater and greater intensity and intimacy. The trajectory of the intimacy of Christ and the Father went up, not down, The older we get, the more intimate we should get with God. The older we get, the closer we should draw near to God. The older we get, the more zealous we should be for God, not the more cold. Don't dry up on the vine the older that you get. Get more more zeal with age. What are your years? The your years are given to you to put away foolish zeal in place of more mature and wise zeal. That's what they're there for. They're to make you wise in the knowledge of God. They are not to make you squander and waste it. That is your life. One of the greatest blessings of Easter is the reminder not only of the path of life through resurrection, but also of the path excuse me, the path of life through resurrection, but also of the path of life to resurrection. That's what we're at right now. It reminds us that our lives are not an endless succession of repetitious events that will go on and on and on aimlessly. You ever feel like that? Oh, I tell you what, the Christian should be the last person on planet Earth to live an aimless life because your entire life is on a trajectory to somewhere. You're going somewhere, namely, to the resurrection of the dead. If you come to Israel with us in October, you'll stand on the Mount of Olives with us, God willing. And you will look down in front of you at the Brook Kidron as it dips down and back up to the Temple Mount. And there you will see two cemeteries. On one side is a cemetery for Muslims and on the other side is a cemetery for Jews, What are they both waiting for? The same thing. They're waiting for Messiah to come. They're waiting for their eschatological hope, their eschatological reward, and people paid big money to bury their people there so that their loved ones would be the first to participate of the resurrection from the dead. Aren't you so glad you're a Christian? You don't got to jump through all these meaningless hoops. Your life is in Christ. Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, I leave you with this thought that all life, all your hope, all of your contentment and satisfaction in this life is found in Christ Himself. He was resurrected to be your life source, to not just be your aspiration, but to be the very content of your life now, to sustain you now before He raises you from the dead one day. He is our life. Paul says in Colossians, we are complete in Him. Father, we understand, Lord, that it's a lot for us to take in. To live this life To stare down the corridors of time. To look at the fact that one day, should you tarry, we will no longer read of the psalmist's experience. We will undergo the psalmist's experience. And may we, God, by Your grace and Your mercy, like Jesus, follow in His steps Intensify our communion with You so that we can, all our days, but leading, leading up to the end of our days, so that we can, placing no confidence in ourselves or in the deeds that we have done, that we can cry out to You as our loving Father, and that in kind You will respond the way that You did to Your Son, And You will respond to us with the gracious words of life that we may hear from our glorious Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the paths of life. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. Enter in at my right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. Give us perspective, we pray, is something only your spirit can genuinely do, God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are here today and you don't have this hope, you really don't. Um, perhaps people think that you do, but you don't. Perhaps you have tried to fool yourself into thinking that you do, but you don't. I can tell you that before you participate, in any food today, <laughs> before you participate in any earthly conversations, you have a more important conversation that you need to have. Namely, you need to do business with God. You need to be awakened to your own mortality. You need to be aware of the frailty and the brevity of your own life. And you need to realize that outside of Christ, there is no hope for the resurrection, except for the resurrection of the dead, to the damned. And so what we pray, I know the prayer of every person in this church, every believer in this church, is that you, before you converse with man, that you will close with God. Amen. Let's sing together.